Amen. Thank you, Pastor Randy. Good morning, everyone. Great to see all of you and such a gift to have another week to gather together and worship. Loved hearing you and watching all the kids. Just such a gift. Um, speaking of kids, parents, if you would like your children to go to some age-specific uh, teaching now that's offered, you can head out to the back and there'll be some volunteers helping you get where you need to go. And everybody else will be in Daniel chapter 11 today. If you're new with us, welcome. We've been working our way through a book in the Old Testament called Daniel, and we are about to the end. This week and next will be our last two weeks, Lord willing, in this book. And then we will have completed together what is one of the most challenging books in the entire Bible. This sermon this morning will not be something like um, three ways to have an easier week. Uh, this is going to be a, a slog, and it's going to be hard work. Are you ready for it? Okay, we'll see. Uh, last week, in chapter 10, we learned that the Jewish exiles were finally returning to Jerusalem. After 70 years in Babylon, they're now home. And as they had longed to do and no doubt prayed thousands of times for, they, they set up a temple, uh, they set up an altar, began rebuilding uh, the temple, and publicly resumed worshiping God. But no sooner had they begun than opposition resumed. Troubles in Babylon made sense to them. They had sinned, and they had not listened to or heeded God's warnings, and so they got exactly what God told them they would get. They were exiled from the land, cast out of His place. That made sense, but this didn't. They're now back in the promised land, in the place in which they had experienced so much wonder and blessing from God. But the problems continued. God's people didn't expect that. And so Daniel mourned and prayed and fasted, asking God for help. And in response, as we saw last week, the Lord sent an angel. The angel revealed a, a complex but important truth that there are battles in the heavenly realm that are all tied up in battles we face in the earthly realm. All of that falls under God's control. And as we kind of looked at the book of Job briefly, we saw that the battles up there are, are not disconnected from the battles here. That's one reason why prayer is so uh, important. Now this morning we cover what the angel went on to tell Daniel about uh, this, the meaning of what was happening around them and how, in a sense, how long it would continue. This is the final major vision in the book. And in this vision, the angel from chapter 10 will tell Daniel about the difficulties God's people were facing, they would face in the future, and God's people will continue to face until Christ returns. And the vision builds to the point of, of climax in which it's going to tell us about the resurrection. Now, as New Testament uh, Christians, many of us in the room, we're we base everything on the fact of resurrection. And yet, 
uh, it wasn't so clear at this point in time that this is what everything was building to. And so this passage is of great significance. In fact, I think it's the clearest Old Testament reference to resurrection. But that doesn't mean everything in the chapter is equally clear. Maybe that guy can help us with what is not as clear. If you just squeeze it real tight, it'll stop. (laughs) Who was that, Tim? John MacArthur. Maybe John's going to help us. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So this morning, um, we're going to take this chapter, it's very long, and we're going to take it in uh, three sections, the, the three natural sections that are in the passage itself. First, we'll look at a very detailed history. That's verses 2 through 19 in chapter 11. Then we'll look at a shocking ruler. That's verses 20 to 35. And then finally, we'll look at the time of the end. That's verses 36 into chapter 12. And so let's get started. Verse uh, 2. Now I will show you the truth. This is the angel telling Daniel, here's the deal. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. In addition to its length, there there are two things about this final vision in Daniel that make it uh, unique among all of the visions in the book of Daniel. Number one, it begins as traditional prophecy. It, it simply says what we would normally think of when we hear the word prophecy, this is going to come in the future. It foretells events. And it does so describing details that are to come for ancient Israel without using symbolism. So it's just straightforward prophetic word. The second thing that's unique about this particular vision is that it contains a dizzying volume of details. I mean, you are like swimming in historical content. Know that unless you've got a PhD in ancient history, the particulars of verses 2 to 19 just feel like you're sort of stumbled into a boxing ring and you're getting beat around with fact. And so... Don't worry about that. We can spar with the best of them, can't we? Um, But they do press an important point. All the details squeeze to emphasize something, and we'll get to that in a moment. In this first section of chapter 11, we begin with that, uh, that power, world power, known as the Medes and Persians. And we're told that three more kings would come after Cyrus. The fourth which history reveals to be Xerxes I, was exceedingly wealthy. Incidentally, that's the king who wanted Esther to be his queen. That's who this is talking about. 
And he acted in such a way that he stirred up the next world superpower, namely Greece. Verses 2 to 3 transition from the Greek Empire to, to, to from the Medo-Persian Empire to the Greek Empire and bring in somebody we probably all will remember from class, uh, Alexander the Great. So, dust off the, the cobwebs from high school history, all right? I know that's why you came to church today. Alexander the Great came out of nowhere onto the world scene, very quickly controlling much of the known world. At only 20 years old, he took over his father's throne. There's a terrifying thought. And very quickly, he became the leader of the dominant superpower of this part of the world. But he died at only 33. Very short life. And notice how verse 4 prophesied that as soon as he rose to power, his kingdom would then be divided like the four winds. His kingdom would be divided in four. Sure enough, Alexander died, all his sons were killed, and his kingdom was divided among four generals not in line for the throne. Now, remember, this, this was written in the, the sixth century. That didn't happen for several hundred years. There's simply no way a mere human being could predict that. Absolutely impossible. That kind of shocking precision continues through the entire section. If we had time, we could literally go line by line. Now, because we look back on these events and understand that they're all pointing to things that literally happened. This was a very difficult time for the people of God because they were stuck between two warring powers. You see, when the Greek empire was divided in fours, what did that do? Uh, we got a few families in the church that have four kids. If you give them a toy and cut it in fours and you need the other three pieces to have the whole toy, then what's going to happen? World War three, four, five, right? And that's exactly what happened. The Greek empire divided in fours. Everybody wanted more land, and so fighting ensued. And the two primary fighters, or battles, if you will, lie between a group called the Ptolemies, they were in the south, and the Seleucids, which were in the north. These two groups, for several hundred years, fought back and forth. Now, think of your ge geography for a, a moment. Another reason why you came today. Egypt in the south. Syria in the north. Who's in between? The people of God. Geographically, they're stuck between these two parties that were fighting for each other's territory. And so that meant for a long, long, long time, God's people became like the middle child. And we all know how they tend to turn out. They're caught in the middle. Now sometime later today, I'd encourage you to read verses 5 through 19, especially if you have access to a good history book that could tell you more about this time frame. You'll be astonished at the level of detail in the prophecies. And they all came true. Now that has great implications on things like 
the trustworthiness of the Bible, for example. But at the macro level, here's what all this means. The angel is telling Daniel, you're praying about a a, a hardship in rebuilding the temple that you didn't expect, but understand the Jews for a very long time will be living in their homeland but won't be free, nor will they have peace. In fact, we know in hindsight that this period of time, so those verses lasted for 354 years. So generation after generation after generation of people were born and died in the land, but not free. Friends, where is God when we suffer? The Jews thought they had reached the place of peace, only to find their difficulties continue. Does God not see? Does God not care? Are His promises not true? Does He work for everybody else but you? Are your very best days only in the rearview mirror? These would have been the kinds of things the Jews wondered. Maybe God's indifferent. Maybe He doesn't even exist. But the particulars of this prophecy tell us otherwise. They tell us that not only does God control the cosmos, but God controls the minutia. Even the things that are hard. Even the things that, at least this side of heaven, we won't fully understand. Now that brings us to the second section verses 20 to 35, and I've entitled this section of verses a shocking ruler because this block of 15 verses is about a particularly wicked man named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Whereas the preceding section covered 354 years, this section only covers a span of 12 years. Just incidentally, in your Bible reading, whenever the action slows down, and focuses a lot on a particular issue or person, then it's telling us this is of great significance. Think of the Gospels. You kind of run through most of Jesus' life, and then the last week covers a massive amount of material. Why? Well, because that's the most important part. So that is a great clue to us here in this chapter. So Antiochus Epiphanes, we've already heard of. This is the, the little horn that Nick preached about several weeks ago in chapter 8. So you're already somewhat familiar with him. Verse 21 refers to him as a contemptible person who would obtain the kingdom by flatteries. That's what happened. Antiochus Epiphanes came to power over the Seleucid dynasty and expanded his rule through bribery. He bought his way into more and more territory. And he was very much wrapped up in himself. When he got to his throne, he changed his name to Antiochus, and then he added the title Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God manifest. So this guy wanted everyone to think of himself, him, as I am God made visible. 
His early years were very easy. With very little resistance, he went into territories, plundered them, took home all the goods, and then bragged about it. That's essentially what life was like for him. Look at uh, verse 29, would you? Something changed, though. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. So that would be into Egypt. But it shall not be this time as it was before, meaning it ain't going to be easy, this one. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw. Now, historical details outside the Bible chronicle what happened. Antiochus had been traveling into Egypt, getting what he wanted, then going home. And he went back again, expecting an easy raid with riches galore. But this time, Rome, who was just coming onto the world scene as a dominant power, intervened. They were beginning to flex their muscles over Egypt. It would be another hundred years or so before they were in control of Egypt. But they wanted to uh, keep Antiochus, Antiochus from interfering. And so very famously, a lot of history can be boring, but, but this moment would have been just phenomenal to see. History tells us that a Roman general interrupted Antiochus' planned raid in the city of Alexandria. He'd gotten there by ship with all his Roman soldiers, and he went up to Antiochus and he drew a circle around him in the sand. And he said, uh, loosely speaking, uh, you're going to stay in that circle till you decide. Do you want to go south and fight not only Egypt but Rome? Or do you want to turn around and go home? Stay in that circle until you decide. That's phenomenal. So, Antiochus, God manifest, is surrounded by his army. He's recognizing we could take Egypt, but we can't take Egypt and Rome. And so he had to tuck his tail between his legs and go home. Now, what happens when a person in power is humiliated? Well, they turn that humiliation into anger and they humiliate somebody else. And that's exactly what happened. So read the rest of verse 30. He shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the burnt offerings. They shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. I know this is hard work. Hang with me. As the humiliated Antiochus made his way to Jerusalem, because he's going home, he gave full vent to his anger. He'd already raided Jerusalem multiple times, killed lots of people. But this time was far worse. Killed tens of thousands, and sought to end the Jewish religion, essentially. He outlawed uh, circumcision. He built an altar to the Greek god Zeus inside the temple. And he even sacrificed pigs where the Jews worshipped. 
In this way, he barred the Jews from their usual daily sacrifices to God, forcing them into the detestable offerings to Zeus. Frankly, I've been trying all week, and I cannot find a way to describe to you how offensive that would be. I don't know that there's actually an equivalent today. If one of you can think of one, catch me after, and I'll use it next hour. I'm dead serious. This would have been the most offensive thing imaginable. Antiochus then became persona non grata. He was the epitome of everything the Jews saw as anti-God. When verse 31 talks about uh, the abomination, it's referring to Antiochus constructing this altar and offering sacrifices of swine, which the Jews regarded as unclean, in the temple that defamed the temple and therefore left it desolate. Someone uh, very, very close to me was uh, got up, left his wife uh, for the day, went to work, got a call later, late morning, that uh, after he left work, someone broke in the house, went into his bedroom, raped his wife, and left her tied up by fours in bed. He defamed the bed. That's what Antiochus did to the Jews, but about their worship. Now remember, this happened to the Jews while they're living in the promised land. It's not connected to exile. They can't piece it together with, well, we're getting ultimately what we were owed because we've sinned. Now they're back at home. And so this is just unimaginably confusing. Everything they hold most dear has been spat on. Now what are we to make of such hardship for the people of God? Let me offer the two answers or clues that the passage itself gives us. Surely there's more answers in other parts of the Bible. But within the text itself, let me give two observations. First, there's a word that occurs repeatedly in this passage. If you were to sit down later today and say, I'm going to read all those verses, and I'm going to look for a word that comes up over and over and over again. That word would be the word time. It's it's like little breadcrumbs the narrator's dropping to lead us to the feast. From... Verses, uh, chapter 11, verse 2, through chapter 12, verse 4, the word occurs 15 times. Thus far in the chapter, every time the word time is used, it's used to indicate that essentially the kings would only rule for a matter of time. That the hardship the people of God face would only be temporary. Our sovereign God will deliver us in his time. And this particular hardship will only last for a season. It will come to an end. The time will draw to a close. It's used like that. But another important aspect of this repetitious use of time is its emphasis on God's providence. It's telling us time and time and time again, God's in charge. We're not. Be it Alexander the Great, 
Xerxes, Antiochus, or Biden. No human ruler is fixed. None. Not even somebody like Putin, who keeps changing the rules so he can stay in power. Eventually, that dude is going to breathe his last, and that'll be the end. No human ruler, however much he thinks, is the one in charge. Only God is supreme forever, and all of history is under his sovereign control. Now, God's providence is complex. It's hard. This is not the easiest truth in the Bible. And yet, it is the only enduring consolation to suffering. The only one. Beloved, whatever comes your way is under the providence of God. Does that answer every question? No. Does that make pain not hurt? No. But it does answer the biggest question. And it is the ultimate warm blanket for your soul. Whatever pain you face is brought or allowed, if you prefer that term, by God. It's under His complex providence. And however bad it is, no suffering is meaningless, pointless, and somehow way over here outside of God's, it's, it's in God's blind spot. And it's spinning out of control and wreaking havoc in your life and God can't see it. There's nothing like that. Which brings me to the second issue that the text points to us as to why this suffering went on. We'll look at verse 35. It says, some of the wise shall stumble. Why? So that they may be refined, purified, made white until the end. For it still awaits the appointed time. Church, there are benefits to persecution. Persecution has its purifying effect. It's like a fire that burns away the impurities and so only gold remains. Persecution tends to remove worldly loves and divided loyalties. Let me say that again. Persecution tends to remove worldly loves and divided loyalties. Because the same God who is sovereign over these ancient events, who foretold them hundreds of years before they occurred, is also the same God in charge of your life and our shared life as a church. So Christian, nothing enters your day except that which God wills. Easy or hard, He reigns supreme over it all. And He uses difficulties in ways that nothing else can produce good. Now the last section in this chapter is what we might call the time of the end starting in verse 36. I call it that because there appears to be a change between verses 35 and 36. Now, if I could stamp a warning on the rest of the sermon, it would say this. The easy part 
is done. All right? Whereas the word time has been used in the passage so far to indicate God's sovereignty and His, His, His control over the flow of history, now that word is used in a broader sense. It's used, quote, to, to get to the time of the end. So it's clearly not meaning the exact same thing. It's telling us not about a, 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 an event in Israel that's in the past. It seems to be telling us about something in the future. Now, these are extraordinarily difficult verses to interpret. And frankly, many views exist among Bible-believing, Jesus-exalting Christians. So, whatever you think about them, you may be right. You also may be wrong. And be nice. It's okay if we don't see these in exactly the same way. I'll do my best to summarize my present understanding of what these verses mean. Ask me again in a week. It could be different. I'm dead serious. And I, I have preached on this stage for 12 years. I've never said that before. This, this is just a very, very difficult text. A majority of scholars agree that there's a marked change when you hit verse 36. And from that point on, it's no longer talking about Antioch Epiphanies. The question then becomes, of course, well, who are these verses about? Let's read them, and then we'll see what we think. Verse 36. The king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper until the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god. He shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these, a god whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortress with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, there's that phrase I was referencing. So it's, it's saying, what I'm telling you here happens in the last days, right before the end of history as we know it. The king of the south shall attack him. Now remember, if this is about end times, then we're, we should be thinking at this point, what does is, what is this symbolically point to? At the, end of, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and ships. He shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land. Tens of thousands shall fall, but there shall be delivered out of his hand Edom and Moab and the main parts of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver, all things precious of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. He shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. He shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. If you look closely, 
You'll see there are shadows of Antiochus here, but this seems to go way beyond his behavior, way beyond what we know from history that he acted like. Instead, it seems that this person, what this passage is about represents an intensification of what Antioch Epiphanes was like. So he's, he's Antiochus, but he's worse. Let me give you two specific reasons why I think this can't be about Antiochus. Number one, Jesus viewed the fulfillment of these verses as happening in the future. If you read Matthew 24 and 25, that's what they seem to say. Jesus reaches back into that passage and tells his disciples, look around, here's what's coming in the future. Uh, generally, I think, no, always, I think, we've got to go with Jesus. All right, number two, see that phrase, the time of the end, in verse 40. If this continued to talk about Antiochus Epiphanes, then verse 40 is wrong because we're still here. So the time didn't come to an end. Unless, I remember a freshman uh, college philosophy class in which they were teaching us, we're not really here, we're looking at us here. Makes me think of a news story I read yesterday that said, is college worth it? <laughs> Take that however you will. <clears throat> now, who then is being referenced if this isn't Antiochus Epiphanes? Well, again, there's no consensus in the church, meaning it, you can't take a, a big slice of Christianity across time, across denominations, and get the same broad, everybody agrees on this. That doesn't exist. While the Bible is amazingly clear in its dominant teachings, there are a few passages that remain obscure. And that must be intentional. Some believe uh, these verses refer to a type of person, not one particular person. Now, if you'll give me another few minutes, then I'll help you see why this matters in your daily life. But give me a few more minutes to try to explain. Some believe these verses don't refer to a singular person, but a kind of person, a person that's repeated over and over and over. In this view, the details of these verses are symbolic. And it refers simply to a pattern of people who repetitively resist God and oppose God's people until Jesus returns. But then in the end, there would be an end to this in the last days, and all who oppose God and embody resistance to Him will lose. Now, John refers to this idea in 1 John chapter 2. It says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. John seems to be saying here that it's not that there's just one person who opposes and embodies evil in the last days. The days between Christ's resurrection and Christ's second coming. Those are called the last days in the Bible. It's not that 
in that period of time, there's just one. That's the supreme example of somebody who hates God. No, there's going to be a whole bunch. That's what John seems to be saying there. In this sense, an antichrist is anyone who's against Christ, anyone who denies Christ, anyone who opposes Christ. Now, there are others, though, who believe the end of Daniel 11 refers to a single individual. And some of you will be familiar with this, and like, you're like, now, I've been waiting all of Daniel sitting through this to get to the juicy stuff. This is the, like the left-behind action. All right? And, and um, there are people that, like, this is a huge, huge, huge deal too. Uh, so some believe that the person being referenced is an individual. These scholars do not deny what John said, that there's little many antichrists. But they, they say all those little many ones are just prepping us for a really big one. That there will be someone still in the future to us who is the embodiment of all evil in resistance to Jesus. And he will be the Antichrist. This would be an individual right before the end of time, right before Christ returns, who is the final major resistor to the church of Jesus Christ. Now, passages like 2 Timothy 2 seem to support that view. If Daniel 11 culminates in a literal human ruler who is the full measure of resistance, then his rule will be a particularly difficult time uh, for Christians. Now, I'm old enough that I've watched people come and go who Christian folks sat around and said, maybe he's the Antichrist. When I was a kid, for example, uh, the person everyone talked about in this regard um, was uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. Now, when I told the staff that, half of them had to look up who is that. Because <laughs> they weren't born yet. So, uh, Gorbachev had this thing on his head. And people thought, that's the mark of the beast. I'm dead serious. I'm not joking. And this was around the same time that you'd go to grocery stores and they would scan your items. And people thought, we're getting marked. I'm dead serious. You believe things that are just as stupid. <laughs> you just don't know what they are. Now, uh, Nero, Mohammed, Mussolini, Hitler, Gorbachev, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> These are all people against Christ. But if there's a ruler in the future who will be supremely against Christ, then the Scripture says he'll gain popularity and success, and it will become very difficult to be a Christian. Far more difficult than it is today. And then in the end, that person will lose. Now, whether Daniel 11 points to many antichrists over and over and over and over and over and over and over, or one that's still in the future to us, I'm not sure it actually matters all that much. I don't see what the big deal about getting bent out of shape about that is. What is most consequential is that in the last days, in these days, 
these days will come to an end. Jesus will return. And the battles going on in the heavenlies, we will fully finally see the physical, spiritual world merge together. God will bring victory, and then we're going to party. Now, look at chapter 12 as we're wrapping this up. At that time shall arise Michael. Now, remember Michael we talked about last week is the archangel, the one who, the angel talking to Daniel, he's duking it out with the demon for three weeks, and then his buddy Michael shows up, and things change. That's this Michael. That time shall arise. Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, there shall be a time of trouble, such as there's never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What a picture. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book. It doesn't mean, like, uh, hide it. It means solidify it so that people will know from now until then. Until the time of the end, many shall run to and fro. Some of you would say, nuh-uh. I ain't doing any running. And knowledge shall increase. Now, these beautiful verses refer to what will take place in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we are now on Mount Everest at the top. This is the the, the glorious moment the book's been building to. The Bible's answer to suffering is resurrection. The Bible's answer to suffering is resurrection. You see, our King will return and all people will be resurrected. Some to eternal life in blessedness forever. And that's not those who did better than others. It's simply those who trusted Christ. We ought to be the most humble, loving, gentle, gracious people on the planet. Because we're anticipating a resurrection that puts us into God's presence forever in which there will never be suffering again. And we did absolutely nothing to deserve that. And some will be resurrected to hell forever. Beloved, notice that the text says you will shine like the brightness of the sky. God, who began a good work in you the day you were saved, will finish that work. You will be resurrected, you will be given a glorified body, and you will reign with Him forever. This chapter is telling us that being above all, our sovereign God will deliver His people in the final days by delivering them from death and exalting them in His kingdom. So we need to be careful how we tell each other this when we're in times of suffering. If you get a call that um, a 
good friend and church member just found out they have cancer. When you go see them the first time, don't tell them that. That's true, and that is the answer, but that's not what they need that day. What they need is you to just be quiet and sit with them. That's it. Just be there. You need a ministry of presence. They're not ready to hear that. So you've got to be careful when you dispense truth. But that is the ultimate answer to every form of suffering and persecution and hardship any Christian and any church ever faced. It's temporary. It will come to an end. It's not forever. And it's not wasted between now and then. That's the Bible's answer. Now that may not be emotionally satisfying in every nook and cranny where you have pain. But friend, take it, chew on it, digest it, absorb it, and do it again and again and again, and you will find it is enough. Remember that Daniel was written to a minority who was suffering, a tiny, tiny little group of God worshipers. They were ostracized, persecuted, and suffering. They were disappointed, they were disillusioned, they were confused. They had no grandeur of voting someone into power who would fix all their problems. They didn't think if we just get another degree or more money, things will be better. They had problems they couldn't fix. And their view of God was not delivering what they thought. They were struggling. And God's response was to fill their minds with big truth. That big truth probably stung. Suffering here, glory there. That's what he says. God still says the same today. Friend, part of our duty as fellow church members, our covenant, our commitment to each other, is that we help each other get to that day and keep the faith. Some of you are facing things that are far more difficult than you ever imagined. And just getting out of bed and putting your pants on is hard. Others of you think, uh, why, why are they always talking about hardship? I mean, life's pretty great. I'm glad that you're in a, uh, a, a blip of normalcy because it's not normal. Difficulty will come for you too. And friend, one of our great responsibilities is to help each other stick with Jesus until Jesus returns. Sometimes that means we share those words with each other. Other times it means just sit, shut up, be with each other. If you're not someone who knows Jesus Christ personally, understand that what this text says to you is there's no neutral position when it comes to resurrection. 
There isn't anybody that pulls the trap door and you get out free. Like, everybody, 100%, all, get resurrected. It, when, a, when a human being comes into existence, they then exist forever. The Scriptures invite you to trust Jesus Christ, to recognize that there have been times you could have made other choices that would have been better. And that some of those choices were directly against God, even if you didn't recognize it. And that God himself, the offended, is willing to forgive you, the offender. By taking on the most heinous suffering in the death of Christ, rising again as the prototype of what everybody who trusts Jesus will become. Friend, that's a message you've, you, you've got to respond to. Either you accept that or you don't. But there's, there's not a, a third way. I encourage you today, if you're not yet sure what to do with that, to invite somebody else into it with you. We're trying to be a church who's not full of used car salesmen. Like when the person drives off the lot and you go tell the other salesman, oh, I really got them. None of us look at Christ like that. We can't force you to see what we see. You can't force yourself. But you can open the Bible with interest, with indecision. And you can read it with somebody who knows a little bit more than you do. Those exist. And you can just pray even if you're not sure anybody's listening. Don't say no to Christ without doing that. So maybe there's somebody in the room right now, before you go out those doors in five minutes, you need to make sure you found somebody. I'll stand here up at the front after. If you don't know who to go to, come start with me and I'll help you. Father, we... Thank you for the clarity your passage gives us. We ask you now that it would bear fruit in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.